This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham joined me to talk about federal politics, including the final report from the Banking Royal Commission. Then, Andrew Walter, Professor of International Relations at the University of Melbourne, joined me in the studio to talk about the latest in Brexit negotiations. And then finally, Paula Mathewson, a freelance writer, joined me to talk about her new book, On Merit. The book explores the myth of merit and the Liberal Party's challenge in achieving gender balance. You're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM in Melbourne. On to what's on today's show. We have first up Ben Altham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he will join me in the studio to discuss federal politics, in particular the findings of the Banking Royal Commission. The report was handed down or at least made public yesterday afternoon and so there was quite a lot of um, initial reactions to that report and so Ben and I will be looking at that in a little bit more detail, Uh, also talking about the political implications for the findings uh, for Labor and the Liberal Party, the Coalition, and uh, there is also quite a lot more to discuss given that uh, sitting week is coming up around the corner and uh, and there's quite a lot of legislation that will be before the parliament including a quite controversial medical evacuation bill uh, that the crossbench put to the parliament uh, in the senate last year and of course if you remember the um, lower house the government basically uh, finished parliament a bit early so that they could avoid a vote, a potential loss of a vote on that bill. Not sure exactly what the numbers are at the moment, given that Cathy McGowan hasn't said either way which way she will fall. But that's uh, also really interesting to keep an eye on. And then after that, uh, Andrew Walter, who is a professor of international relations in the School of Social and Political Sciences at Melbourne University, will be joining me in the studio. And uh, Andrew's been on the show a couple of times before and each time Andrew drops by we discuss Brexit. Uh, There's so much developing on that story and it's pretty important uh, for the whole world but it's also a bit dramatic and I do enjoy some political drama so uh, Andrew is going to discuss Brexit where we're up to and also I guess the UK domestic political situation uh, because there's a lot of controversy around Jeremy Corbyn and Labour's lack of opposition or alternative uh, to the Tory party and yeah it's it's very interesting to see just I guess the decline of um, the Labor Party in the UK. So I'll be interested to hear from Andrew on that. And then finally, I'm speaking with Paula Mathewson, also known as Dragonista on Twitter. Uh, I've known Paula for 10 years on Twitter, but I've never spoken to her over the phone. So I'm looking forward to speaking with Paula about her new essay, which has been published by Melbourne Uni Press, and it's part of their series. This one is entitled On Merit, How the Red Shoe Resistance is Busting the Merit Myth in the Liberal Party. So we'll be talking all things liberal women and uh, what's really holding them back in terms of leadership positions and uh, well, even winning pre-selection. So stay tuned for that. Hi, I'm Kerry O'Brien and you're listening to Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. I love hearing that voice. It's so beautiful. 
<laughs> and uh, it's very apt for the next segment. I am speaking with our regular Ben Eltham from New Matilda, and he's in the studio with me to talk about federal politics. Hi there, Ben. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. How is life? Life's okay, thanks, mate. That's good. I'm um, loving the milder weather at the moment. Yes, it does make a change from last week's furnace-like conditions. Yes, and um, it really does also remind me to mention that although Melbourne may not be, or at least Victoria may not be as at risk, although we've seen Hepburn Springs having some real issues at the moment, but there are other parts of Australia that aren't doing so well, so we should, you know, not forget that. Yes, absolutely. My thoughts go to all the Tasmanians um, who are still fighting the fires down there, devastating fires down there on the island. Yes, and also to Townsville who've had a year's worth of rain in seven days, so it's not great. It's pretty wet up there in North Queensland, GOG. Mm. Yep, so another example of where um, the environment has kind of broken records again and uh, it's another real... I guess, stark contrast to the fact that uh, we don't really have a climate policy. Well, we have a climate policy in this country. It's let it burn. I mean, I think this government's been pretty clear on that from really from the beginning. Um, It's pretty pretty sad. It's pretty disappointing. There's there's an excellent article by Richard Flanagan in The Guardian this morning, actually, where he points this out. You know, he he says that Tasmania is burning thousand-year-old forests. Uh, are vanishing Mm. and you know we've got a prime minister whose main claim to fame is brandishing a lump of coal in federal parliament it's uh it's quite a read actually um not not exactly the happiest read but the it's a very powerful piece it is and uh also minister for energy angus taylor has uh indicated he may underwrite new coal-fired power stations as well which is another concern yeah i mean that's just a thought bubble that that's what I call vice signalling, that's sort of the opposite of virtue signalling. Well, they um, did ask for applications from various companies for projects and they said we're open to any form of energy. Yeah, I mean, I, I just don't see how any reasonable offer would be made there. Unless the government's going to specify it must be coal, I can't see how they can get a coal outcome on that kind of tender because as we've discussed many times before, Amy, the cheapest and most reliable new form of electricity generation is renewable. Well, that's That's true, but as we've seen, logic and rationality isn't necessarily part of the conservative wing of the Liberal Party when it comes to energy policy. I think Angus Taylor is particularly craven in this respect. I mean, I was talking to uh, a colleague and a source who, who knows Angus Taylor personally. You know... Uh, that source was saying that Angus Taylor used to be quite pro-renewables and his his current kind of love affair with coal and with fossil fuel power is really entirely about his own ambitions within Mm. the Liberal Party. And how pathetic is that, you know, that you would gesture towards your rusted-on climate denialist base rather than do what's the best thing for the country? That's pretty sad. It is very sad. And it highlights a couple of things. The rise of independence challenging people such as um, a former Environment Minister Greg Hunt in the seat of Flinders. We've seen Julia Banks announce she won't recontest Chisholm but will contest uh, Flinders. Yeah, well, um, you should talk to Paulie Matheson about this later on the show. Mm. I'm sure she's got some thoughts on on the the rise of the the sort of right-wing independents. But yeah, there's been a a whole swag of them put their hands up in recent days. Uh, Zali Stegall up in uh, Ruringa going to challenge Tony Abbott up there. Uh, Julia Banks, for reasons that I'm not quite sure about, is moving from her current seat of Chisholm 
Tourism and wants to contest Flinders, which mm. is uh, down towards the peninsula. Mornington. Uh, Mornington and includes Phillip Island and uh, that's Greg Hunt's seat and has been for many years. Uh, I, I actually think she will probably struggle actually against mm. Hunt there down there. That's I think that, that should be pretty safe for Hunt. But in the current environment, who can say? Who knows? And then we've had Oliver Yates, um, who's actually a former boss of one of the big renewable energy agencies and is a liberal, is challenging uh, Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer, in his seat of Kuyong. So mm. lots of interesting contests coming up between sort of right-leaning independents and sitting liberals. Yes, and the rationale that uh, Yates has put forward is that Josh Frydenberg failed in his duty as Environment Minister before he became Treasurer, and therefore he deserves to be ousted. Well, it's pretty hard to argue with that logic, actually. I mean, the Great Barrier Reef is dying on, on this government's watch. But uh, whether the voters of Kuyong agree with that, I guess only time will tell. But mm. but Yates is, you know, he'll be a strong challenger and he'll vacuum up some donations. And, and I reckon he's a pretty organised fellow too. So he'll run he's a pretty very. decent campaign. Uh, of course, that is extremely safe Liberal territory. That uh, said, he's a, he's a Liberal. <laughs> Like he, he was a member of the Liberal Party. He's only party. recently resigned from the Liberal Party and yeah. he's sort of well-known Liberal moderate and a skier of, of industry as well. So yeah, it certainly shapes up as an interesting contest. Frydenberg, though, I have to say, is pretty entrenched in that seat. I think it will be hard for Yates to win that. Well, it will be really interesting. And uh, obviously in the first half of this year, there was likely to be an election. So we're not that far off. Oh, no, we're, we're certainly not that far off. Uh, both major parties now solidly in election mode. I mean, Tours of Queensland. Yep, absolutely. Both um, parties. Yep, Bill Shorten's got in his bus, has been touring Queensland before the floods. Uh, Scott Morrison's also done a bit of a, a whistle top whistle-stop tour of Queensland, and then he's been in Tasmania looking at some of the fires. Yeah, both the major parties really ramping up for what's going to be a short, well, a long election campaign in the sense that they've already started. But I think Mm. once we get down to brass tacks, I think it will be pretty intense. Yes. And uh, you mentioned before Zali Stegall, who is running in the seat of Warringah against Tony Abbott. We had quite a few um, women signal their interest in running. One who actually said they would, Alice Thompson, a former Turnbull staffer, did that before Stegall put her hand up and so she's actually withdrawn so that she doesn't split the vote. Yeah, Zali Stegall I think will be quite an interesting candidate. So she's a barrister and a former champion skier uh, and you can't get much more northern suburbs of Sydney no. than that. And uh, I, I think she'll be a pretty attractive candidate. Uh, she's She's you know, not that far to the left of Tony Abbott on many issues. She says she opposes Labor's dividend imputation reforms. Uh, she is being she is quite positive on climate, she says. But but really, she's sort of sitting in that pretty solidly Turnbull kind of territory of you know rule on social issues and conservative on on economic issues. Again, you know, it's it's really a test for voters to see how sick they are of these kind of locked in, entrenched right wing candidates. This gives people who would normally vote Liberal a bit of a choice if they don't want to vote Labor. And um, let's have a a quick mention of that policy um, that you mentioned. There's this 
horribly ridiculous saying now going around that it's a retirement tax, which of course it's not. But ben, <laughs> it's, no, it's really not. Can you please just debunk that a little for everyone who's a little bit, you know, not sure on what a dividend imputation is? Yes. Well, if like me, uh, you are on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, you, you may not necessarily have tens of thousands of dollars of fully franked shares, which pay you a dividend. But that's what imputation is. Basically, what happens is the company pays company tax and then it's able to pass on a tax credit to shareholders who receive dividends. Now, where this has become particularly lucrative uh, is where people get a tax credit for this. So this is, in fact, where the government pays their money just because they receive these dividends. Uh, it's kind of hard to get your head around, but uh, that's how the system works. If you have a taxable income of zero, which you might have, for example, because you're in the retirement phase, um, you know, you're in retirement or um, your super's paying out in retirement phase, then you will actually get paid money by the government simply because you own these fully frank shares. Mm. So for people who um, are very wealthy and have large share portfolios, these dividend imputation credits are worth thousands, even tens of thousands of dollars a year. And of course, where it's unfair and why Labor wants to get rid of it is that it's essentially a tax, or not even a tax credit, it's actually cash, cash yep. that the ATO pays you. It's like a big you refund. A you get a big check every year simply for the benefit of owning shares. Now, of course, that's quite unfair. And as Labor points out, the, the really large bulk of that value of that credit goes to rich people, quite yes. rich people, in fact. Very rich people. Yes, indeed. Um, in, the, in the millions. And so this is interesting because if you look at the budget, it's actually counted as a cost to the budget. It's in. It's a, basically a spend item that oh, must yeah, be... Oh, yeah, it's a tax expenditure. Exactly. And so we see people making comparisons to other similar expenditures such as public education, which is um, actually not as much as the, what we spend on dividend. It's blown out to something like $5.5 billion a year that the government's spending on this, yeah. which is Chris Bowen, the, the Labor Treasury, Shadow Treasurer, points out, you know, that's more money than the government spends on significant items like early childhood education, believe it or not. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it's hard to justify, I think. And in fact, the more you explain it to people, once people know what it actually is, they're horrified that it even exists. Yes. Well, it doesn't make any sense. And it's something that uh, the Liberal Party has decided to push Labor on and um, they, well, there is a, a committee inquiry going on at the moment to consider this policy and uh, if you were not really taking much notice, you may have assumed it wasn't to do with a parliamentary committee because essentially when I saw it on Twitter, it looked like a Liberal Party propaganda roadshow. Yes, well, uh, Tim Wilson, the member for Goldstein down in the south of Melbourne, uh, he's also the chair of the House Economics Committee and um, he's used that opportunity to get a bit of a bandwagon on the road to go around spruiking the, uh, the horrors of this retirement tax, as he's calling it. And he's getting people to, to sign up and register and, you know... There's a whole range of questions around whether this is an appropriate use of committee resources. 
It's completely inappropriate. And the reason why is because it's not a policy. It's not the government's policy. It's an opposition policy. So I'm not sure why we need a parliamentary inquiry into it. Exactly. And it's interesting to see, really, that all of the messaging that the government's on about at the moment is to define themselves in opposition to Labor's plans and policies rather than putting forward their own plans and policies. Well, that's right. The government's running scared and and really all they can do at this point is run negative and that's been the case for some time now. So they're just going to try and run negative, try and attack Labor wherever possible and see if they can scare enough voters into staying with the government and try and hold on, you know, by the by their fingernails, really, in the upcoming election. Exactly. And, uh, well, it's interesting. I was reading The Australian, as one does, uh, yesterday. <laughs> well, you good know, on you, you Amy. Someone's to... got to. I, I am. I'm doing a public service. And uh, it was actually written by Paul Kelly. I had to double-check because he was quite um, balanced and reasoned and he it was quite a good piece. Uh, but interestingly, the headline said, Shorten inherits a powerful legacy. And it was in relation to the Banking Royal Commission final report. And uh, I thought when the Australian is suggesting that it's already a done deal and uh, a bill shortened government will be implementing the 76 recommendations, then you know you're probably in trouble. Yeah, so uh, I guess that's the big news that happened yesterday afternoon. The Royal Commission report by Kenneth Hayne was handed down and we got the full recommendation. Uh, from the, the former High Court judge about how to reform Australia's manifestly uh, unfair and corrupt finance system. It was, a, it was a really interesting report because on the one hand, Hain diagnoses a, a really a devastating market failure. He points out that the system was entirely rigged against consumers, that the banks in the financial sector had too much power, consumers had very little power, and so banks could get away with charging dead people for fees, charging fees for no service, all the other amazing stories that came out of the Royal Commission hearings. Hayne then goes on to make a series of 76 recommendations. Uh, the government says that they've accepted all of them. Um, some of them are far-reaching and will be wide-ranging and important. So he's, he wants to basically abolish the entire mortgage-broking industry, which is really interesting. So under his recommendations, mortgage brokers will no longer be allowed to charge any trailing commissions and they won't be allowed to be charged. They won't be allowed to get their money from the banks that they're, they're supplying the mortgages from. So basically, Hayne wants to mm. fix up all of the perverse incentives in the system in which the financial planners and the advisors and the agents that consumers think are working for them and are actually working for the banks and the finance sector, he wants that that conflict of interest to be fixed up for good and forever. Um, where I think people are quite disappointed, though, is in his recommendations for the regulators, particularly the embattled corporate regulators regulator ASIC, yep. which as the Royal Commission found time and again, refused to use its powers to rein in the excesses of the finance sector. He has decided not to break up ASIC or not to give ASIC's job to a new regulator. And he simply says that ASIC's culture of enforcement must be strengthened. Yep. So he says that ASIC's got to actually start doing some enforcement. Mm. It's got to use the powers it's got and it's got to start taking people to court. Now, whether ASIC will do that, I think is really the, the billion-dollar question here. Yes, well, the Greens were um, talking about that last night, suggesting that um, some of those powers should have been given to the ACCC because of the fact that 
ASIC has been so lacking. And and also they had suggested a couple of other things that they felt hadn't been addressed, such as um, the vertical integration, which is such a horrible term, uh, but it basically just means the fact that a bank can do everything and offer every kind of product and service, such as wealth management, superannuation, mortgages, life insurance. Having all of those um, products means you can often be in that situation where there's a conflict of interest and you're not having the best interests of your client or consumer at heart. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, Hayne might might say in, in answer to that that there's plenty of laws that already ban financial institutions from not taking the best interests of their consumers at heart. But they've just ignored mm, those rules. ignoring the rules, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think it is a problem of enforcement, not so much of the existing rules. And and really, it's a, I, I think, yeah, the, the problem's got to got to be with the regulator. So whether ASIC can now be reformed to actually have some teeth, you know, whether we mm. can get this sort of watch poodle to actually act like a proper watchdog and start savaging some of these institutions when they do something wrong, taking them to court, you know. I mean, it will be really interesting to see. So Haynes referred 24 banks and financial institutions to ASIC for potential prosecution. It will be really interesting to see what, what actions the ASIC takes. You know, mm. what will happen to Catherine Brenner, the former chair of AMP, who we know lied to ASIC. So she authored an email that misled the regulator. Now, that's a criminal offence. Will she be charged with a criminal offence? You know, um, people like Jack Regan, he was the, the sort of boss of wealth management at AMP. Will he be charged? Um, there was, you know, swinging criticism of the National Australia Bank, both the CEO, Andrew Thorburn, and the chair, Ken Henry, the former mm. Treasury Secretary. Uh, Hayne issued some some very stern report you know words about them you know so will these guys be hauled before the courts you know and i think that's that's really what consumers who've been ripped off want to see and you know as adele ferguson the the crusading journalist who uncovered a lot of this wrongdoing points out what haynes essentially saying is that the watch the watchdogs who really got us into this mess by not doing anything are the ones that we're now trusting to try and fix it and Mm. that's a worry i think it is um especially given there's not really a huge amount of oversight of the watchdogs. Really, there's just Parliament and uh, this new proposed body that uh, doesn't necessarily have powers to direct ASIC or APRA to uh, do anything in particular, but it is basically there to monitor their performance and report to Parliament. Yeah, that's right. So Haynes recommended a new watchdog for the watchdogs that would sort of sit above ASIC and APRA, the prudential regulator. It would have the power to investigate them and it would have the power to um, issue reports to Parliament, but it can't really do anything. So it's not allowed to sort of sack CEOs or anything like that. It'd be interesting to see what effect that has, Mm. if anything. Um, You know, uh, I think if we look at other jurisdictions and other types of Commonwealth policy, these kind of bodies where they don't have powers, basically they get ignored. You know, like, look at the Privacy Commissioner as a good example. Uh, The Office of the Information Commissioner, the so-called Privacy Commissioner. Again, it can issue reports, it can do investigations, but it's been completely toothless when it comes to policing grave invasions of privacy by the Commonwealth, for example, through the Centrelink robo-debt algorithm. So I don't have a lot of hope for this kind of super-regulator watchdog thing. 
Again, though, you know, like time will tell. I do think there's a sense in which Hayne has pulled his punches here. You know, I, I think that if you look at the, the illness that he's diagnosed, it is a devastating indictment of the way the Australian economy is run and regulated. You know, basically for profit. He says greed is the biggest problem here. But nothing in his recommendations really address that kind of existential issue, which is that, you know, we've, we've really let the shonks and the crooks run riot. We have, and uh, he also raises the issue of um, shareholders and that um, the the thing that the banks really mention constantly, uh, that the shareholders are their, I guess, number one stakeholder that they're accountable to, uh, but Hain rejects the defence that the pursuit of profit is justified by shareholder accountability. Quoting from the report, he said, financial returns to shareholders will always be an important consideration, but it is not the only matter to be considered. It is not right to treat the interests of shareholders and customers as opposed, and he goes on to talk about the fact that if we were looking at um, the company's long-term financial advantage, people would see that it is not binary and that uh, that perhaps those interests would be aligned. Yeah, well, um, I mean, these are probably quite wise words from Justice Hayne, but uh, what are the incentives there to realign the, the, that issue? You know, I, I don't think there are any, you no. know, as long as these big financial institutions are fundamentally judged by their short-term term share market performance, then I think we're going to continue to see the pressure on the frontline staff to sell as much product as they can. And, you know, that's one of the things he diagnoses in the report. There's a rampant sales culture where it's all about just shoving as much product down the throat of the customers as possible. And it's not about giving them advice. It's just about selling, selling, selling. You know, I think it's pretty obvious what's required here. We, we need a wholesale rejig of our regulatory regime to stop this sort of stuff from happening, or at least to crack down on it when the the law is broken. I'm not sure that this report delivers that. No, and um, Labor haven't ruled out taking further action, nor has the government. The government is um, also signalling it would set up a compensation fund for people who haven't received compensation for um, really major things like perhaps having life insurance or, um, you know, and not having it paid out when it should have been paid out, those type of things. And there's basically about 300 million I believe for that fund yeah absolutely there should be a compensation fund you know but it's it's about more than remediation is the word the word they use which is a bit of a stupid word I think you know I I, I think that while that will do something it's it's clearly not going to stop future no. infractions or, so um you know extrapolating from his report then if we're not going to get rid of ASIC how can we make ASIC an actual proper watchdog I mean one thing I think we should do is spill the board I mean I think James Shipton the current chair even though he's fairly new I think he's got to go I mean I, I think there needs to be a clean out of the existing senior ASIC staff they've been shown to manifestly failed as a regulator um, and we need to get in some people who like prosecuting basically mm. and well, I don't know where we find those people maybe in the DPPs of the various state governments um there's plenty of white collar fraud investigators in the various federal police and state police forces maybe people like that need to come into ASIC but the the current kind of system where it's a sort of revolving door between the top financial institutions and the financial regulator I think that's got to stop major yeah I mean there's so many 
potential conflicts or even perceived conflicts. But um, one of the the things that I was particularly um, impressed by was at least that uh, Commissioner Hain signalled out particular individuals for comment um, based on their evidence <coughs> and uh, perhaps it might provide some, I guess, direction or information to consumers about what he believes um, the intentions are of various companies and company executives. But in particular, and as you mentioned, he signalled out NAB, um, Andrew Thorburn, the CEO and the chair, Dr Ken Henry. And uh, what was really quite revealing which he said, uh, and I quote, he said, I thought it telling that in the very week that NAB's CEO and chair were to give evidence before the commission, one of its staff should be emailing bankers urging them to sell at least five mortgages before Christmas. Overall, my fear is that there may be a wide gap between the public face NAB seeks to show and what it does in practice. So, I mean, that's a one really... Um, interesting quote and he says many others about NAB and what his um, interpretation was of their um, thoughts. Uh, Yeah well and this is where I think his report is devastating because really it shines a light into just how corrupt the top of Australia's economy and finance is. I mean this we're talking about Ken Henry here right this was the head of the treasury during the GFC the guy who designed the stimulus package um, one of the most senior respected economists uh, for the government in the last 30 years. After his stint in the public service, he went to be the chairman of NAB. And at NAB, he presided over wholesale infractions and misconduct, you know. So it goes right to the top of Australia's economic system, you know. Mm. These guys are the most powerful people in our economy. Basically, Kenneth Haynes says he can't even be confident that they're not going to go on doing what they've been doing in the past. Yep. So, you know, I I do think Ken Henry probably has to consider his position as the chairman of NAB. I, I, I think that... Well, all executives at NAB, it <coughs> seems, have <laughs> basically been commented upon by Haynes, including even their um, senior counsel and uh, a range of other ex- top executives. It's not even just the CEO or the chair. Um, there's a lot of really interesting comments uh, around... Yeah, but see, I mean, the, a muscular regulator could step in now. So in, in America, yeah. in similar situations, uh, the SEC has stepped in and actually forced directors of big institutions to step down. You know, APRA actually has that power. APRA mm. could step in and could say, all right, well, there's been a negative finding in the Royal Commission report against the chairman. It's time for you to step down, Ken Henry. I mean, that would be the kind of muscular regulation that you might see that might make a difference to this kind of problem. Mm. And I guess they need, well, they shouldn't need, but it would be helpful if politicians provided their backing and support for harsher penalties. Yes, I'd like to see what Labor's going to do here. I'd Mm. be disappointed if Labor simply gets in behind the, we're implementing all the recommendations and everything's going to be hunky-dory from now on because... I don't think it will be. Yeah. I'm speaking with Ben Altham and we're talking about federal politics. Uh, so, Ben, in terms of, I guess, the the public response, what has been the bank's response to this, the financial sector? I know um, there's obviously a bit of difference. So, uh, for example, industry super funds are quite feel quite secure in the um, report that's been handed down because they are less affected, but there are others that are quite affected by these findings. Uh, well, the, the biggest uh, the biggest panic has come from the mortgage broking industry because basically what's being um, proposed here would 
pretty much destroy the mortgage broking industry. So um, if you are forced to pay an upfront fee to your mortgage broker in return for that broker securing your mortgage, would you pay it or would you just go straight to the bank? I think this is a sort of existential threat to the mortgage broking industry. So they're pretty upset, obviously. The retail superannuation is upset, but mm. I don't know why because they've been shown <laughs> to be systematically fleecing their clients over a long period of time. So they deserve all the criticism they get. Yes. The industry super funds are justifiably pleased because they've been largely vindicated by this. The banks, uh, led by their spokesperson, none other than former Queensland Labor Premier Anna Bly. Yeah, it's uh, amazing. Something of a class traitor right there. Mm-hmm. Um, Anna Bly said, yes, we are very sorry and we'll uh, please judge us by our actions, not by our words, uh, which... Um, if we are to judge them by their actions, I think we'll be judging them pretty harshly. harshly. But mm. anyway, let's see what they do from now on. Perhaps we could judge them on their words and their actions. Well, I mean, perhaps... Shouldn't they we, be aligned? <laughs> well, if, if their actions, you know, if, if they actually take action, you know, then that might be one thing. Um, you know, the first action might be for Ken Henry to resign as chairman of NAB. That would be one action. Sure would. Yeah. Sure would. Yeah. Um, I, I think he may have... Well, a lot of people in this industry who've been tainted by this may have issues trying to gain further employment on boards? No, I don't think so, Amy. I mean, if you look at the history of financial scandals in this country, half the people that get mentioned in these scandals go on to extremely lucrative careers. Just take a bit of gardening leave. Yeah, I mean, there's there's people all over the sector who've been implicated in financial collapses, whether you go back to HIH, Allco, Babcock and Brown, Opus Prime, Mm. uh, you know, you name it and there's plenty of those people who are still having very lucrative careers including as company directors yes they do now um ben we are going to have a sitting week it is surprising given how few days we have on the sitting calendar at the moment and it was commented upon uh last year that the coalition is basically avoiding having parliament sit so that it can't look so horrible to the public perhaps it's helping a little bit given that the polls are a little narrowing very 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 slightly uh but what do you think uh, is likely to be on the agenda for next week? Uh, The main thing on the agenda will be uh, a private member's bill to um, get all of the children off Nauru, Australia's immigration detention prison in Nauru and there's a there's a private member's bill on the books to do that. The government says it's already getting the kids off actually. Scott Morrison has just miraculously decided to act on this. Mm. Um, the government's very concerned that it will lose a vote on the floor of the House of Representatives which some people could interpret as a loss of confidence in the government by the parliament. I don't think that that's truly the case. I mean that's a bit of a constitutional debate it's not really a, mo- a motion of no confidence as such, but it's a, but for the government to lose a substantive uh, vote would be you know very embarrassing at the very least, and it would call into question the government's longevity. Yes, it would. Uh, although they wouldn't really want to go to an early election given their intention to deliver a budget in April. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think they want to go to an early election. I think they're just saying that the, an early election is possible mm. just to spook people and maybe to get their own troops into line. But I'd still think that the the overall plan is to go after the New South Wales state election. Yeah. And that means also that they get to deliver a budget with lots of pre-election goodies. bribes and goodies and tax cuts and things. Exactly. And uh, 
Kathy McGowan has announced she won't be recontesting her seat. Uh, so that's probably one example of where she said she wants to sit her full term and uh, is one of the de- deciding votes in that particular bill that's going to come forward. So. Yeah, Kathy McGowan's been pretty consistent in saying that she'll give the government supply and confidence. Mm. So I don't expect her to change her tune there. No, and uh, a final note on that issue and for today, there was a quote going around from Tony Abbott which was quite revealing of uh, our debate at the moment on refugees and asylum seekers when he was commenting on this so-called medical evacuation bill that we've just been discussing. He said um, on the fact that doctors will have the final say essentially and be able to um, say, well, based on the medical evidence available, this is what you should be doing he quoted i have a lot of respect for the medical profession but we all know that doctors always err on the side of compassion that's meant to be a negative thing ben yes well i guess it's something we couldn't accuse tony of erring on the side of (laughs) compassion ever and um, plenty of doctors will remember his tenure as health minister not particularly fondly so um, this is just more of tony's uh signaling and gesturing there you know, I, I think the immigration debate has turned actually now and I, and I think that, that the tough on border protection lines from the government that was so effective in 2013, they're not really working anymore and I think this is a big problem for the government because it's based so much of its image around, mm. be, you know, beating the border security drum and I, and I don't think that that drumming is resonating anymore. What a shock, what a shock. Ben, it's been great to speak with you and I'll be speaking with you next week. Yeah, always a pleasure, Amy. Thanks, Thanks for mate. coming in. That was Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. This is Johan Hari, the author of the book Lost Connections, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins on 3RRR. You're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM. I'm Amy Mullins, and I'm very pleased to have with me in the studio once more Professor Andrew Walter, who is an expert in international relations. He's based at the School of Social and Political Sciences at Melbourne University, and we are about to discuss Brexit, uh, but as we were discussing off-air, congratulations, Andrew, on completing a book. Thanks, Amy. I'll come back and talk about that yeah. if you want. That's on a, it's on a boring subject, relatively <laughs> speaking, of uh, you know the politics of banking crises oh, over well, two it's centuries. Oh, well, it's quite relevant. Yeah, isn't yeah. It? Well, you know, Australia hasn't had one in a while, but uh, yeah, it's got some other problems. Yes, we have plenty of problems. Yeah. So basically. Brexit. I had a bit of a pre-vote, um, I think it was pre-vote, update in December. Gosh, time's flying. Mm. And uh, we were basically going to have um, a vote on a deal, which uh, Theresa May put to the parliament. She'd already delayed the vote because she kind of knew it wasn't going to go so well. And then she had a historic defeat, um, which was predicted by everyone, um, and it didn't seem to go all too well. What was the the parliament's UK parliament's response to the first deal? And um, was it a wholesale rejection? of all the deal or were there just a few you know parts that were really contested well yeah to say that uh, they didn't like it uh, very much is an understatement this were this vote lost 
uh, the government lost this vote by 230 votes. So it drew uh, opposition votes from across the parliament, including substantial numbers from within Theresa May's own party. So the, mm. the party is breaking down uh, before our eyes and has been for some time. Theresa May clearly doesn't want to precipitate a deep uh, break and indeed a split within the Conservative Party. But that's effectively what we're already seeing. Um, the attitude so the attitude towards the deal differs depending... There are multiple coalitions with very, very different and opposed views within the parliament, and that reflects a deep confusion and split within the electorate. Um, no one knows what Brexit means, or it means different things to different people, and there is no agreement on what it should be and what the outlines of a of a, of a good and a sustainable deal should be. So that's mm. the fundamental problem. Yes. Well, there are a lot of different um, amendments that were put forward in response to the deal as well, highlighting that split and yeah. the various coalitions, and um, most of them didn't get voted for. Mm. Um, they were voted against. There are a few that were close, but there were um, some that uh, Theresa May wanted others to vote for, um, and I think it was the Brady Amendment yes. which um, she was supporting after losing her vote. Yeah, just before we get to Brady, the, yeah. probably the most important amendment on that list of more than a dozen was one by Yvette Cooper and mm. Dominic Grieve uh, from the Labor and Conservative parties, respectively, to push back the Brexit date by nine months. And that failed, yeah. I think, by 13 votes. That one may rise again as we get closer to March 29th and no deal um, effectively is looming. The Brady Amendment essentially revives an old... Uh, I think many people have called this a zombie idea, the idea of going back to the EU and rediscussing something mm. that's being has that has been discussed extensively and dismissed by the EU uh, for two years, uh, which is the existence of so-called alternative arrangements to the Irish backstop. Mm. These are fantasy ideas about technology preventing the appearance of so-called border infrastructure between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic for trade purposes. They those alternative arrangements don't exist anywhere in the world and there's no credible argument that the British have that they exist or will exist in the near future and for that very good reason the EU has said mm. we can't agree to this. Yes. So they insist on the backstop that protects Ireland. Yeah, and so for those who haven't been following this closely, which is probably many people mm. except me and you, um, what is the Irish backstop and why do we even need it? So we need it because embedded in the Good Friday Agreement that created peace, established peace in Ireland in 1998 under the Blair government, uh, there was an agreement to eliminate border infrastructure and to allow trade between the Irish Republic, an independent state, of course, mm. and uh, the northern Irish uh, part of the island of uh, the island of, of Ireland, Ireland. <laughs> um, that is part of the UK. Yeah. Um, and this was broadly supported by most people in Ireland, that is the establishment of peace and the establishment of essentially free trade as part of the EU, and a strong commitment in the Good Friday Agreement not to unravel that. Tony Blair and John Major, before the UK referendum on Brexit in June 2016, both warned, rightly so, mm. Brexiteers like Boris Johnson, Michael Gove and others, that 
Brexit would reopen and undermine the Good Friday Agreement. They were right, and Boris Johnson and others denied that this would be a problem, but of course it's become a problem, mm. inevitably so. The backstop is essentially a product of the EU realising that the British have become such an unreliable partner and negotiating, and their negotiating commitments are not worth the paper they may be written on, and various British ministers have said so, that they may back out of any agreement, including David Davis, Boris Johnson and others, that the EU rightly says, and at the insistence of Ireland, that the border infrastructure and the Good Friday Agreement must be respected. That is, mm. that no border infrastructure should be erected and that uh, the, the island of Ireland uh, should remain an integrated economic union. And for that reason, the backstop essentially says that if there is no agreement between Britain and the UK on a future trade deal, mm -hmm. as a backstop insurance policy, Northern Ireland will remain in a customs union and single market arrangement by default with Ireland mm -hmm. that will respect the Good Friday Agreement. So it's an insurance policy. And indeed embedded within the withdrawal agreement that was rejected by 230 votes by the British Parliament is a concession by the EU that if in the future such alternative technological solutions um, to uh, the backstop arrangement appear miraculously mm. <laughs> out of the sky, the clouds part, and lo and behold, someone invents a technological a solution, solution mm. that they will opt for that. Mm. So it's already in the withdrawal agreement. Yep. And it's amazing and indeed deeply, I think, concerning that the Brady Amendment says that's unacceptable, the withdrawal agreement, which embeds the possibility of these alternative technological arrangements mm. should they appear coming into force. It's worrying that they want Theresa May to go back now to Brussels and renegotiate something that's been hashed through a dozen mm. times. Theresa May agreed in December 2017 in the so-called joint agreement with the EU that the technological solutions did not exist. Mm -hmm. So I cannot see what is to be achieved in this. It looks like a delaying tactic on both the part of the Brexit ultras, that is the people who want to crash out without a deal, yep. and Theresa May who probably wants to run the clock down to May 29th so mm. that the Get parliament leverage. is faced with no alternative but to vote yes. It is quite shocking and it's a bit sad really that that's become one of the major sticking points of this deal is yeah. the Irish backstop. Um, I guess it is interesting though that uh, perhaps because Northern Ireland may in at some point or now or into the future be part of that customs union is it um is britain really not happy with that because it's basically not a hard brexit it's it's not like totally um leaving the eu in full yeah so that's true for the so-called brexit ultras mm. that is the people associated with the group called the european research group a complete misnomer because yeah, what a benign they, yeah, name. they do no research uh, <laughs> of a fundamental kind on Europe. Yeah. They do not understand it and they systematically have a kind of British schoolboy 1950s, 60s understanding of Britain's role in the world mm. and of the European Union. They do want a hard Brexit that severs all ties and, frankly, they seem not to care very much 
the head of that, the effective leader of that group in the House of Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg, mm. has said that he doesn't need to travel to Northern Ireland to understand the Irish problem. And various other members of it have said the same thing. This, uh, I think, unfortunately reflects a deep and long-standing sense of superiority and indeed dismissal of Irish issues and Ireland's historic problems Mm. by a certain segment of the Tory party. So I wouldn't say that Britain wants to crash out a certain hardcore and I would call them radical revolutionaries, who are willing, in effect, to push Britain and Ireland over a cliff in order to engage in a kind of fantasy experiment with a kind of global, free-trading, free-wheeling, buccaneering Britain, taking Britain back to the good old days, you know, Invasion Day in uh, yeah. you know, January the 26th, a uh, couple of centuries ago, uh, you know, yeah. ago, and so on. Um, empire, um, when Britain was great, make Britain great again. Mm. But in fact, it's going to, I think, substantially impoverish Britain, not only in the economic sense, but diplomatically. It's making Britain look like an appallingly poor diplomatic actor Mm. uh, with whom few countries looking on may think that they can trust in the future. Um, It's playing into the hands of rogue actors like Russia in particular. Um, so it's very difficult to see uh, that this experiment is going to lead anywhere good. It is. It's really concerning. And what was the response to the other elements of the deal? Because so much has been paid attention to in terms of the Irish backstop. Were there points, other points in various parts of the parliament where they said, oh, I'm not really quite sure about that? Yeah, well, you know, Boris Johnson has said that maybe they won't pay the $39 billion settlement deal, um, which, you know, again is... uh, The EU is in the strongest bargaining position. It's Britain who wants to leave and it's Britain who has committed in 1998 and again Mm. in December 2007 to respecting the Good uh, Friday Agreement, the Irish peace settlement. So it's Britain who is the demandeur here and the EU is a massive market. It's the largest market in the world and we are seeing various big uh, British stroke European companies, global companies, saying that they will move operations. Parts of the City of London, Airbus. um, Airbus, I mean, extraordinary, uh, has a a German CEO and some parts, again, of the Brexit ultras in Parliament stood up. One one, uh, British MP stood up, made fun of the fact that this was a German, said effectively that Britain has stood up to Germany before. Remember 1940, they will do so again. This is Project Fear. But, you know, so they're unwilling to listen Mm. to the voices of business, now, uh, maybe you might say, well, good on you, but this is the Conservative Party, remember, which has historically yes. been the party of business. So they are running off the rails in terms of their historic constituencies. Um, a lot of the, to get back to your question, sorry, um, mm. a lot of the more moderate parts of the Conservative electorate and the Tory party are deeply worried that crashing out uh, would lead to uh, a catastrophic economic and political outcome. Mm-hmm. And that the Conservative Party would never be forgiven, or at least not for a generation, and would lose office to 
scary Jeremy Corbyn uh, and friends uh, for 20 years. Uh, so that's why there's a lot of underlying sentiment, uh, a cross-party sentiment in Parliament, that there should, be no, there should not be a no deal. There has yes. to be a deal. Let's kick the can down the road if, if needed uh, or let's reach an interim settlement, mm-hmm. maybe Theresa May's. Um, but uh, how to effectuate that cross-party desire to avoid a no-deal is, in practice, really difficult in a parliament that's dominated by the executive branch. Yes. Well, most of those amendments were in various forms seeking to avoid a no-deal, weren't they? Yeah, a lot of them were. Um, but parliament can vote for a no-deal, It's but it's a bit like voting not to have rain during a test cricket match. Uh, mm. at Edgebaston or Lords, uh, you can express a sentiment, but how do you actually stop it from happening? You have to actually say what will be done, mm. and that's the fundamental problem. It is a big problem, and one of the propositions um, of the Labor Party and Jeremy Corbyn has been to suggest perhaps a customs union mm. with the EU. Um, it's taken a long time for Jeremy Corbyn to have a position on anything except that they support Brexit. <laughs> it's uh, equally fantastical on the Labour Party side, or at least the official Labour Party side. Mm. Jeremy Corbyn doesn't really want to take a hard position. He fears, for example, that if he supported a second referendum, that there would be a revolt by those Labour constituents who voted for Brexit, among, you know, and there are yeah. a lot of those. Um, A majority of the party wants to avoid, and indeed a majority of the constituents want to avoid a hard Brexit, and that's why he's come in with this fuzzy, we want a customs union Mm. with Britain, but at no cost. Um, So part of the so-called Labour Party's red lines for any future deal is that we want to retain a close trading relationship above all in manufacturing because that's the part of the economy that they like and where a lot of their constituencies are drawn from. But they want the EU to accept this deal without insisting on any other costs. That that proposal would break the four freedoms of the European Union, free movement of goods, services, labour and capital. So the EU will insist, and rightly so again, mm. that if Labour wants to cherry-pick parts of the single market, it must accept some costs. And Labour, again, doesn't want free movement either, or at least... The, the leadership. So, you know, um, to, to expect that if, for example, Parliament um, agreed a vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister and there were an election, a hurried election, which uh, the Conservatives do not want no. because they, they may well lose given how appalling uh, an uh, electoral campaign uh, Theresa May is. Um, if it were nevertheless to happen, um, the Labour Party would not be able to go back to Brussels and negotiate an effective deal either. Yes, have a mandate. They're proposing a fantasy as well. <laughs> I wonder why these people get paid. <laughs> uh, you may well ask that question, and I think a lot of British voters uh, should demand a lot better. We are stuck with what seems to be a British uh, political class, which I think has deeply underperformed expectations. The European mm. Union, a, a, a few of the inter- European Union interlocutors have said they've been amazed at how appallingly incompetent the British negotiators have been, beginning with David Davis, uh, over the past two years. They used to see Britain as pragmatic, hard-minded, sensible, 
good diplomats. Mm. Theresa May booted out uh, uh, Ivan Rogers, um, the former ambassador to the European Union, who was probably the person who knew most about the European Union and uh, had most expertise to negotiate a deal because he didn't agree with the government uh, and its various uh, propositions, Mm. right, for good reasons. Um, So it's a bit like Stalin murdering uh, some of his generals in the 1930s and then being faced with Hitler. So effectively they sidelined key people um, and that's been part of the problem but they have deeply uh, uh, I think uh, they've provided a deep disservice to the British people Yes, and we've seen so many different and new Brexit secretaries yeah. It's uh, How do you maintain any level of consistency? Yeah, well people would be forgiven for not knowing who the latest one is um, and effectively the Prime Minister's office, the Cabinet uh, the Cabinet office is in charge of the negotiations so you know, a lot of this is fig leaves mm. and people like David Davis who dramatically underperformed had to be effectively pushed aside. Um, So, yes, it's chaotic. Uh, The European Union has rightly said, we've been through all this before for two years. Um, No deal uh, Mm. if you won't accept what's on the table or ask for an extension. Mm. But take you're going to need more than three months, which is another one of the amendments on the table because we don't believe that you are ready there's no internal consensus on what you want and it's not up to us to decide what you want. Yeah. Um, so the Brits, until they decide what they want and there's no consensus in Parliament or among the Cabinet or among the electorate, it's very difficult to know what the European Union should do. Well, I don't envy their position. No. Um, and it is a good point. What do you want um, is a really good question. Yeah. Uh It's something which is interesting. A lot of people have criticised Theresa May because she hasn't um, consulted widely across uh, parties and, and, you know, she hasn't spoken with Nicola Sturgeon and included Scotland, for example, in these um, discussions and negotiations. There's a lot of bad blood now um, over this because people haven't been brought along and it's just been a kind of command and control approach. Do you think that's a fair assessment? I think think unfortunately it is fair. Um, It's probably an unrealistic expectation, however, to expect someone like Theresa May, a diehard blue ribbon conservative essentially to choose country over party. Mm. Now, however much we would like her to rise up above the political uh, contestation of the day and to be more prime ministerial, in inverted commas, and to build a cross-party coalition, which is surely there for the taking to avoid a hard Brexit, and to compromise with the European Union in in a way that would provide Britain with a pretty soft Brexit. I think there is a large parliamentary consensus for that. Mm. To take that route would mean that she would lose the Brexit ultras, the people who really, I think, essentially are sending Theresa May back to Brussels in the full expectation that she will fail, which will then allow them to say that this has betrayed the will of the people, whatever mm-hmm. that means, yes. um, and allow them to take uh, the view that they can then vote against the deal and hopefully, in their view, precipitate a crashing out of Britain after March 29. So um, 
So Theresa May has chosen party and party unity. She has made a, a massive concession to the far right, the rad, these radical revolutionaries, and saying, OK, the Irish backstop is unacceptable. I will go back and renegotiate it. Rule Britannia and maybe this time... Boris Johnson wrote an appalling, yet again, another appalling article in The Telegraph a week or so ago saying with an image... He has his schoolboy images uh, and he trots these out from time to time. Mm. We can have our cake and eat it. Um, you know, a very yeah. primary school image during the referendum uh, campaign. The latest one is... The the schoolboy bully, the EU. Oh, of course. <laughs> will be stood up to by the plucky the plucky uh, British boy gets up, uh, shakes the dust out of his hair, turns around and says no to Europe. Um, so images of 1940, mm. uh, Commando magazine, you know, all these sorts of things being drawn on by Brexit ultras and by, I think, radical English nationalists yes. like Johnson and others um, who want no deal, effectively. Yes, well, there's been a lot of poor um, imagery but also poor comparisons. Like I know just recently... the. Um, one particular MP was talking about the Marshall Plan and how England was apparently hard done by in the Marshall Plan, which historians quickly ran yeah. to uh, correct the record because it couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, well, a bit. it's a bit like Trump's America. There are all these... Um Half at best, half truths being pushed about. I mean, mm. for, you know, bring you know, three hundred and fifty million pounds uh, a week going to the European Union, for example. I mean, a, an outright lie during the referendum campaign, yes. and all of these half truths which are plucked up, and it just shows, I think, the underlying superficiality of a lot of the English ruling class. Mm. The underlying superficiality, by the way, of a lot of English uh, education. Uh, doing greats at Oxford um, or PPE for that matter allows a lot of bluffing. People who are quite good at bluffing, people who are quite funny like Boris Johnson, people who have a certain amount of charisma um, I think to have hoodwinked a lot of the English electorate um, or the British electorate but primarily we're talking about England here. Yes. Um, into thinking that somehow um, they can make Britain great again. Yes. And it's a very dangerous uh, sentiment when effectively they are brushing, either brushing aside expert advice or saying that these people are betraying, uh, betraying Britain. Uh, you may remember headlines when judges ruled that Parliament had to have a meaningful vote in the uh, in the deal. Um, the judges were called by some of the tabloid press traitors. Mm. So this, uh, you know, has a lot of um, overtones of Trump's America and populism more broadly. It's surprising that it's now so much in the open. Was this kind of populist or nationalist sentiment simmering underneath for a while? Yes, I think it was. And I think a lot of people thought it had gone away. Uh, I think a lot of people had thought that prosperity and indeed the enormously wonderful deal that Britain got uh, out of its um, membership of the EU since 1973, it got to opt out, it got to cherry pick yes. within Europe. It didn't have to accept uh, various social clauses and other things. It yep. stayed out of, that's right, stayed out of the euro. So it had a wonderful deal. Now it's become deeply apparent to pretty much 
teach everyone that any alternative is inferior and mm. substantially inferior to actual membership of the EU. They, I guess, are, um, you know, and they're trying to pretend uh, that this doesn't matter and that plucky Britain uh, will pick itself up from uh, the, the school ground and, uh, you know, shake the dust off and get up and do what Britain's good at. But again, this is based on... This is not based on expertise. All of the experts, including the government's own Treasury and various other parts of the administration, have shown uh, pretty systematically that this will be a significant hit to the economy, to Britain's political standing in the world and to its prestige and reputation. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Professor Andrew Walter from Melbourne University and we are talking about Brexit and UK politics. Um, I'd like to quickly examine a couple of things Scotland um, had a referendum on independence. Uh, it's talking and has been talking about it for a great length of time. And uh, Nicola Sturgeon co is constantly saying, oh, well, well, I'm just waiting for the right time to, to bring it back. It seems like this um, a new referendum or a second referendum would be quite far away. It doesn't seem like a very realistic proposition at the moment. Would that be true? Yeah. You're talking about a second Scottish referendum yes, there, not a second, a second referendum not a Brexit. on Brexit. No, yeah. not a people's vote as they've yeah. said. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's certainly, um, and again, Scotland um, uh, and Nicola Sturgeon have been, generally, have been looking on uh, the Brexit negotiations in horror. Mm. Um, so they've, re But they've revealed a couple of useful things for the Scots. One is, first how unreliable a, partner, a negotiating partner Westminster can be. Yes. And secondly, that any negotiations would be long extended and appallingly difficult. Extracting highly integrated states and economies mm. from... You know, in, in the case of the EU, it's been since 1973 that various facts, legal, economic, political, social, cultural, have been created on the ground since 1973. And pulling apart this, I mean, so it's like a... It's like a 40-plus-year-old marriage. Yes. Um, and dividing up the swirls and agreeing, effectively, you're still going to have to live right next door. You, mm -hmm. can't, you can't get around geography. And so it's a bit like, um, you know, deciding on, you know, do you have a fence and, and all of the diff uh, who determines interactions between the two uh, properties and, and so on and on what basis and what kinds of rules. In the case of Scotland, of course, it goes back to the early 18th century. And so the level of integration is so much higher. And uh, I think Scots, uh, looking on, have also, of course, thought, well, if we went for a second referendum, which was, you know, which was decided fairly decisively mm. uh, in favour of remaining um, a few years back, uh, it would be an appallingly difficult exercise actually to extract Scotland from the rest of the UK and potentially highly costly. Um, so... I think there's a lot of hesitancy that that of course uh, Nicola Sturgeon and others point and want to use a, the potential of a second referendum on Scottish independence as a negotiating uh, weapon vis-a-vis mm. uh, -vis Westminster and Theresa May, but they haven't been very successful, have they? Because no. as you said earlier, um, it's pretty obvious that Theresa May is choosing her Conservative Party unity over any uh, serious negotiation with the Scots. So, go figure. I, yeah. You know, so, uh, and I guess that reflects, again, a deep sense of 
English superiority vis-a-vis the more peripheral nations of mm. um, the two islands, um, but also a sense that, well, the Scots probably don't have anywhere to go um, and, you know, we don't have to take too much account of their interests. Yes, Theresa May is calling her bluff. Yes. Yeah, it is. It's interesting to see that. And I guess that's why the Scottish, um, or the SNP, the Scottish Nationalist Party, are doing so well is because they are riding on that um, sentiment of Scottish people being highly frustrated with Brexit and Theresa May and also referencing their historic, you know, rivalry and many, you know, political battles mm. and violent battles. Um Another thing I'd just like to to quickly touch on before we go is the EU and um, their response, like the various countries' kind of response to Theresa May's approach. Have there been, I mean, like France, for example, um, and and others, um, how have they responded to this kind of, oh, well, it didn't work out, so I'll come back and renegotiate? You know, are there there kind of like, Angela Merkel has been another example um, of, you know, having a strong voice on this issue yeah so the british uh the british clearly believed uh that the eu would soon fall apart in the process of uh, the negotiations that have taken place till now that the unity uh that they professed was a sham and that when it came to it you know as boris johnson and others said the german car industry you know they sell so many cars to us mm. um, and they have so many interests at stake they'll force the german government uh, to come round and cut a good deal for us so that we can have our cake and eat it too. In practice, what happened uh, was that in the early stages of the negotiations, for example, David Davis uh, said at the end of phase one of the negotiations, well, having done that, we might actually change our minds in the future. That sent a very strong signal to Europe that the British couldn't be trusted, mm-hmm. that they had to write down in the withdrawal agreement very locked down legalised arrangements for the Irish backstop because meanwhile the Irish government was looking and listening and saying we can't trust these people they might pull out and so you know again to go back now and ask for an exit option from the backstop is just unacceptable to Ireland and they Europe has a strong interest after all what is Europe about it's about defending little states from the big ones in the way that they were not in 1939-40 and so on. Um, And so Europe has made a very strong and clear point of defending Ireland's interests in particular, but more broadly, the integrity of the single market, of the customs union, and the various integrated arrangements that Europe has built up since the late 1950s. And rightly so, because they are faced with various existential threats that we don't have time to go into here as well. But they need to insist on the integrity of the system and on standing up for little guys. And in the process, of course, they are demonstrating to Britain just how uncomfortable life is Mm. and will be on the outside in an increasingly dangerous world, in a world where Europe will no longer be inclined to say, we need to defend Britain's interests against, let's say, Russia or China, whomever else in the future, or indeed the United States. Yes, Yes, well, the the political goodwill has been whittled to yeah, nothing. <laughs> exactly, and Europe would be quite uh, reasonable in saying, we've had enough, make up your mind and come back to us, we'll give you yeah. another year. I suspect in the end that that's what may yeah. happen because 
I don't think either side... No, neither side has a strong interest, with the exception, as I said, of the Brexit crazies, the yes. ultras, on, cra- on Britain crashing out. Yes, it does seem um, that for long-term stability, yeah. it would be best to sort it out properly the first time yeah. than to have to kind of... As we said uh, many months ago when we were talking about the legislation that has to be put in place <sighs> to replace... Existing legislation that's been created based on their um, membership of the EU, it's Mm. a huge task that can't, you know, once this negotiation has been confirmed and Parliament agrees on whatever the agreement is, then all this legislation needs to be written and brought into law. Yeah, exactly. And that's this is a project of years. We will be talking about Brexit, whatever happens. And even if they agree Theresa Mail's deal finally, or some Mm. modern, slightly tweaked version of it before the end of March, um, we will be talking about Brexit, or they will be talking about Brexit for decades. Yes, it's such a shame too because yeah. there are a lot of other issues <laughs> that troubling Britain <laughs> beyond their membership of the EU. Of course, and yeah. in fact, you know, that's part of the problem that people voted for Brexit in part because of all of those other issues, mm. failing towns, regional cities, education policy, social policy. Or blamed on Brexit and the Europe, uh, European Union, helped by tabloid newspapers. Yes. Um, but that wasn't the problem, and those problems remain. They do, they do. Mm. Thank you so much, Andrew, for coming in and uh, helping us to understand a lot of the complexity that is arising out of this issue mm. of Brexit. Pleasure, Amy. Nice to see you again. You too. That was the wonderful Professor Andrew Walters, and he is at the University of Melbourne. He uh, lectures and writes in politics and international relations and he has a book coming out so if you're interested in banking crises <laughs> that's the one oh sorry go what was it called the wealth effect the wealth effect i Cambridge like it university press next yeah. month and and uh, if you are listening overseas and you're in london you can go to the lse the london school of economics for the launch 4th of april mm. awesome yes um i was joking to andrew he might get stuck over there <laughs> It is possible. <laughs> you are tuned into Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. The last interview for today is with Paula Mathewson. She's a writer and uh, she has written an essay that's just been published, in fact, today. Uh, and it's called On Merit. And it's part of a series that the Melbourne University Press has put together. Um, These these cute little books, um, they're quite thin and small, but they have these um, standalone essays on various topics. And, of course, there's some others, uh, such as On Fairness by Sally McManus and On Race, a whole range of topics that have been considered by various writers in Australia. Uh, This particular topic is On Merit. And, of course, what else could it be talking about but uh, the Liberal Party? And they certainly do have a bit of an obsession with the concept of merit and merit-based appointments. And so Paula Mathewson, who uh, I've known for roughly 10 years on Twitter... as she was known to me as Dragonista, is joining me now on the phone and uh, she's here to discuss uh, the Liberal Party and their women problem um, and and the, the idea of merit and merit-based appointments. So I welcome Paula now. Hi there, Paula. Hi, Amy. Nice to meet you finally. Yeah, it's, it's so weird um, that, you know, you know someone through Twitter for a very mm. long time and have never properly spoken or heard their voice? 
Indeed, indeed. Yes, it's great to finally meet you too. And uh, this essay is um, certainly an important contribution to an issue which seems to have really had its moment now and is continuing Mm. to have its moment um, and possibly will have a a further moment after the um, election this year, depending on how uh, the Liberal Party travel in terms of... um, those who, who still have to be pre-selected for their seats, but also who wins um, their seats. And certainly mm. you raise in this um, essay the real challenge that is currently in the Liberal Party of uh, making sure that women are pre-selected for safe and or winnable seats. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we see often a fluctuation of um, the women in these positions uh, in Parliament is that that pre-selection battle seems to be one of those key um, contests where women maybe don't get over the line. Um, What is it inherent about the pre-selection process or culture in the Liberal Party that means uh, Liberal women don't have, I guess, even an equal playing field uh, necessarily? Mm. Well, I I think it helps to understand that the Liberal Party organisation in each state is responsible for the pre-selections. And um, certainly over recent years, uh, in the past couple of decades, the Conservatives or the right wing of the Liberal Party has been dominant in most of those state divisions. And so what we find is when the Conservatives are in charge, because they're Conservatives, because they're traditionalists, they tend to pre-select men. Um, And even when there are women sitting on pre-selection panels in the Liberal Party, um, they they tend to be women with with, um, traditional or conservative views as well. I mean, Liberal Party membership is almost entirely um, retirees or um, senior Australians, I guess is another way of putting it, over 60. Um, And so, yes, they have these traditional views. They tend to pre-select men. And, you know, the more men that you have in the party, the more of a um, masculine culture that you have. And it just sort of keeps generating itself over and over again and becomes a cycle. And it's not attractive to women either as a party member or as a potential candidate or as a voter. Um, No one wants... A party that wants to support a party that looks like it doesn't support women. And so if women voters are not going to vote for the Liberal Party because of this, then it's going to end up in an existential crisis for the party. Yes, and we've seen this um, become a real issue, particularly for women who are pre-existing sitting members um, in a particular seat, such as Jane Prentice and Anne Sudmalis, fall victim Mm. to factional movements. Um, Anne Sudmalis, you know, she was um, quite a secure member and then uh, the the members in her particular seat who were part of her pre-selection have um, shifted and changed and the support was no longer with her, which is why she thus decided to retire. I don't think it was necessarily a voluntary or um, it seemed to be a bit of an early retirement. Mm, Absolutely. I mean, Anne has the... the honour of being replaced by two men. Uh, first of all, her party, well, the pre-selectors, 
Well, well you're right. She retired um, under pressure. Mm. Yes. And so a man was chosen to replace her. And then he was ditched by the party and another man was put in to replace her. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's been a number of women who've either retired or lost their pre-selection, as in the case of Jane Pointers. Yes. Um, you know, over you know, the past decade or so, or even more recently since um, the Abbott government was, was elected. And almost every single one of them has been replaced by a man. So we're going we're going to a situation now where we had uh, let's have a look. Um, so I'm just looking at numbers here. And we've had around twenty five twenty to twenty five women across the two chambers, Liberal women, uh, since the nineteen ninety six election when we got more than ten. Uh, and that could now drop down to something as little as half a dozen in the House of Representatives and and some more in, in the Senate. So it'll be going to pre-Howard days, basically, because women have either left and been replaced by men or have lost pre-selection to men. So, as you say, no women are being put... No new women are being put into safe seats. So we've got mm. some safe seats, like Julie Bishop is in a safe seat, which is why the men, the Conservative men and the WA Liberal Party are circling her and that seat because they want it, because it's safe. Yes. So I think there's there's four four women in, in four or five women in safe seats of in the whole Liberal Party. It's That's pretty it. dismal. <laughs> <laughs> and a couple who are in number one positions for the Senate election uh, in May. So they'll mm. they'll get in as well. But you know, last last election, only 18 women were only pre-selected for 18% of the Liberal Party's safe seats, which is just ridiculous. I mean, if you want women in Parliament, you've got to put them in winnable seats. It's no point the Liberal Party saying, oh, we've got, you know, the highest number of women ever pre-selected if most of those have been pre-selected in seats that they can't win. Yes. Exactly, exactly. And um, I thought it was particularly interesting that, as we've said, a range of women have lost pre-selection battles, either as first-time candidates or pre-existing members, and yet uh, Scott Morrison intervened in the Craig Kelly case so that he would retain his pre-selection and uh, be running in that seat again. Do you think it's um, a little bit rich to only intervene in certain cases and not in others, particularly when it's only whether the, uh, the member kicks up a stink? <laughs> well, yes, and it's that's yet another example of of how Liberal Party politicians are not appointed on merit. They're appointed, uh, you know, or pre-selected either through factional deals or through branch stacking or through who they know or through prime ministerial imprimatur. Uh, you know, ev- everything and anything but merit. So, you know, it just yet again puts the lie to, to this claim that it's all about merit. Yes, and this has been trotted out at every single um, discussion of the fact that the Liberal Party has very few women, certainly in comparison to the Labor Party, who brought in a specific policy to address their dire 
um, lack of balance when it came to gender and certainly their track record isn't perfect uh, in terms of following their own rules in terms of affirmative action. Mm -hmm. However, they've still at least made enough gains to have quite a substantial number of women on the front bench and in shadow cabinet and previously cabinet and of course a female prime minister. Um, But one of the uh, particular interesting elements that comes up is this issue of uh, pipeline which I've heard so many times um, that, and I know it's a total fallacy except in some very extreme cases in the world where there, it's legitimate such as um, mm. perhaps when engineering was quite male dominated that may be uh, a fair argument to suggest there wasn't a pipeline of women but there has been a pipeline of experienced women and certainly when Tony Abbott was Prime Minister and put together his cabinet with Peter Credlin um, there was only one woman and I know that for the entire period that that occurred there was outrage from many um, parts of the community because it seemed to be a suggestion that uh, women are not as inherently qualified as men um, and that maybe not even as naturally talented as men um, because mm. they're not naturally coming up through the ranks and they're just mm. they're actually just knocking at the door mm. uh, and you know, so this this again brings in this whole question of merit and whether, whether you should have a merit-based system or a quota-based system the fact is that that, that in opposing imposing quotas labor took the best of both worlds so they decided to you know they decided that they had a a, a male dominated culture and needed to have something to break through that so they imposed an, um, a quota but they didn't do it in a vacuum they didn't, didn't then just turn around and pluck women off the street and pre-select them they they set up institutions, organisations to identify um, talented women and then um, you know, foster them, bring them through the system, create this pipeline um, so that when, you know, I, I guess an example would be how the Liberal Party could do it. Say a seat like, let's pluck one out of the air. Let's say Menzies, Kevin Andrews' seat in Victoria. He's been in that seat for over 20 years. He's been in Cabinet. He's, you know, he should, they, the Liberal Party should be ready to tap him on the shoulder and say, oh, mate, time, time to move on. It's a very safe Liberal seat. Now, if the Liberal Party was fed income about appointing women on merit, it should have a system of identifying and cultivating talented women that are connected with that particular seat, for example, and then when the time comes for pre-selection, use the quota system to impose one of those talented women on the seat. So you can have the best of both worlds if, if, if you must. Um, and that is, in fact, what, what, the Liberal, what Labor has done. So, and in doing that and in putting people, women into safe seats, then you, you can have this pipeline. But as you say, in the case of the Abbott cabinet... The only reason that only one woman was appointed to the to the cabinet was because there weren't enough women that had not only time in office but had the right political philosophy that was acceptable to Tony Abbott and Peter Credlin. 
So you'll see that all the women that didn't get appointed to Cabinet but by Abbott but did get appointed to Cabinet by Turnbull, the vast majority of them were moderates. And so you can see that there are these other factors at play. It's not about merit. It's also about what what's your faction of alignment. Um, so we saw, what was it? I think Turnbull's minister cabinet had five or six women. Scott Morrison's has a similar number. You know, there there, are, there were women of merit within the Liberal Party that should have gone into that cabinet at the time. Yes. Well, you mentioned five qualified women um, beyond Julie Bishop. Uh, there's Sharman Stone, Susan Lee, Maurice Payne, Michaelia Cash and Kelly O'Dwyer. Michaelia mm. Cash being a conservative liberal mm. um, who certainly would have been an Abbott supporter. It is quite disappointing that people like Sharman Stone, for example, who was, uh, had already been a minister, had a, diff- had a portfolio before, um, was eminently qualified to be in that um, that cabinet and wasn't given a position um, in cabinet is it's really it, it seems that that kind of experience and talent isn't necessarily going to be rewarded in the same way that it would be rewarded to a man and I guess in in Julie Bishop's case many people might have expected that given her um, long tenure as deputy leader of the Liberal Party and her um, significant popularity with the electorate, as well as being a highly successful foreign minister, might have put her in good stead to be rewarded with the party leadership and, uh, as such, the prime ministership. And yet, then she wasn't rewarded for her abilities. And as you say, factionalism and uh, political leanings come into play. If we're talking about a merit-based system, um, clearly women. <laughs> of merit aren't being rewarded. Do you think, um, like, how do you, what do you think that does to the morale of women, particularly Liberal women, who have, um, I guess, stuck it out for such a long period, like Julie Bishop? Uh, well, it's, it's um, shattering, I could imagine, and, and that's why we've finally had this pivotal point in August last year during the leadership challenge where women in the Liberal Party looked at Julie Bishop, saw her as perhaps the epitome of a woman of merit within the Liberal Party, saw Julie stand up, put herself forward for leadership and garner only 11 of 85 votes. Now, that 11 was not representative of the extent to which she was considered to be a leadership candidate. It was, a, it was indicative of the factional deals that were going on and the, you know, the philosophical, uh, the political manoeuvring that, that was going on. But, and I think that's why finally a number of Liberal women stepped forward and said, this is enough, we need to call this out, we need to start exposing the hyper-masculine culture within the Liberal Party that has been created by the lack of women which has come about as you know, due to all, you know, a number of other factors. Uh, now, I, I know that there's been some controversy last night in you know, Julia Banks being asked to name names on, on Q&A. Um, but, of course, naming the name is, is one thing, and, and I've actually been an advocate of naming the name. Sometimes I think 
bullies need to be called out. But she can't do it in, in a public space. She'll be mm. sued for defamation. She'd have to do it in Parliament. And then it would all become about that individual and about he said, she said, rather than tackling the cultural and the structural issues that are the problem within the Liberal Party. So so I, I am supportive of her declining to name the names and to focus more on, on the cultural problems that are in the Liberal Party. Yes, well, we, there's a good example there. Um, Lucy Gachui, who's the senator... Well, she turned Liberal um, very or semi-recently and uh, was not pre-selected for a Senate position by the Liberal Party, or at least not a winnable Senate position. And so um, she actually was going to name names and then decided uh, later not to because Scott Morrison said he would put together an independent review and uh, look into bullying allegations. Do you think that review has been conducted or is likely to ever see the light of day? I suspect will depend on the outcome of the election. Mm. <laughs> I don't think we'll. I don't think there'll be anything that happens before that. Um, I think that there will be a number of reverberations through the Liberal Party, you know, depending on the election, of course. But if there is a really strong push by Australian voters against Conservative male Liberal candidates or male Liberal MPs, um, that will be a really strong signal to the Liberal Party if they don't already have a million of them that they really do have this women's problem, that they really do need to be making some changes. And one of of the changes that's been called for by um, those women and others that have been subjected to bullying and intimidation within the party, that there needs to be some processes put in place. And, you know, it's not just the moderate women, the you know, the bleeding hearts, if you want to call them what the conservatives call them, that are calling for this sort of thing. You know, small, you know, some of the right of centre, uh, more con- small C conservative women, liberal women, are calling for, for this as well. Um, I'm not sure that, that even the Labor Party has adequate structures in place to deal with these issues either but it's more of a pressing issue for the Liberal Party at the moment. Yes I think there's certainly no lack of cultural issues in the Labor Party when it comes to gender there's still certainly it's not perfect and and having you know almost gender balance hasn't miraculously fixed uh, even politics as a culture it's in and of itself and the way that the game is played um, there's still this hyper masculine combative approach um, that exists even with such a strong proportion of very impressive um, female leaders on the Labor Party side well it takes time I mean, cultural change takes time we 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 know that from, from looking at the business sector, not to mention the banking sector, but the broader business mm-hmm. sector. We know that, uh, and you would know this through your work, that you know, it's not enough to have one woman on a board. You need to have um, at least three to kick off the sort of cultural change that needs to take place in an organisation um, that would you know, benefit from, from having that more, those more diverse views at the leadership level. And that then takes time to work through the, the entity itself. So it's, 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 it is very much an evolutionary change. And Labor has at least recognised that it needs some of these blunt tools, like quotas, to 
to, to kick that along. And another, of course, is, is being able to um, interfere from above, either through um, National Council or through the leader of the party to stop things like when the South Australian Labor Party tried to put Don Farrell up as number one on, on the Senate ticket instead of Penny Wong. Um, you know, the... the um, who was the leader that was Gillard, I think, was might have been leader at the time, or might have been Rudd, stepped in and went, no, that's not acceptable, you've got to fix that. So, you know, the, the men in the Labor Party will, strike, will still try it on. Mm, oh, for sure. It hasn't, it hasn't it, you know, that cultural change hasn't yet occurred, even though they've been working at this since the early 1990s. And it's going to take even longer, but at least they've now got the number of, and they're up to 46%, I think, of, of women in the in Parliament, in the Labor caucus. Um, but they're not in government yet, so you know, they need to be, that, to institute even more of that diverse thinking once they're in government, and that will hopefully also trickle through. Well, I think uh, hopefully is probably too weak a word. And it should. It, re- it really should trickle through. That's what we've seen yeah. um, in the corporate world. I'm speaking with Paula Mathewson and we're talking about her new essay that's just been published today called On Merit. Um, now, Paula, in terms of this concept of merit, it's often, uh, I mean, a lot of the men who would challenge it, even some of the women who would challenge quotas, for example, would say that fairness is a real issue and that um, it also means that uh, it should be the best person for the job. And so if you're um, filling a quota, you may not necessarily get the quality you are seeking. I mean, I'm pretty sure everyone realises now that isn't the case. But when we're talking about quotas, the Liberal Party in uh, at its formation had quotas and that was because very prominent Liberal women fought for that to happen so that they definitely had a seat at the table in their executive, in their party structure. There's also quotas in Cabinet when it comes to the coalition agreement and certain number of nationals uh, getting seats around that table. Quotas aren't really a new concept to the Liberal Party. So do you think that argument, could it all be convincing to the Liberals? Um, The the thing about... I'll I'll, I'll take it the other way around. The thing about Merish is that it is a part of Liberal Party philosophy. So if you are um, a, a Liberal, it doesn't have to be a big L liberal voter but a small L liberal we have that sort of moderate centrist philosophy um, you still believe in the power of the individual freedom of the individual and the right to be rewarded for effort so that's where the merit bit comes in and you know liberals or, or and also conservatives are against anything being imposed by government or some sort of centralized agency because they they're into individual freedom so that's why they oppose quotas so it's on that very deeply philosophical basis even though as you say quotas do play a part within the party um but but it also demonstrates why this merit miss is so hard to kick. Um, you know, I've, I've watched, heard some liberal women saying that, I think it's Connie Ferravanti who's saying, I don't want to be a quota girl. It's, it, it's, it's not necessarily demeaning or 
meaning that it's the lowest common denominator to be appointed via a quota. If you have that um, complementary process, which, you know, organisations like Emily's List, identifying and fostering these women of merit, the quota is really just the, the instrument by which you appoint women of merit. Um, so you know, it's something that, that the Liberal Party organisation just needs to get its head around um, and, and say, OK, we believe in merit, but we understand that we, we need some tools to break through this culture of, um, of us just, you know, this mirroring recruitment process of uh, culture that we have within the organisation where the traditional men on pre-selection panels pre-select traditional men. We've got to find a way to stop that or at least reduce that so that we can bring in women. So it's, you know, do both. Why not do both? If you want to keep your philosophy around merit, fine, but use it in conjunction with quotas, use it in conjunction with developing this pipeline of talented women so that you can point to the women that you appoint on quote, with, through quotas saying, we've still done it on merit. We've just used this mechanism to do so. Mm. And you talk about philosophy and, um, and I guess this resistance to have something imposed from outside. Certainly the corporate world in my work were not interested in having uh, a legislated quota or a a, a very much a, a mechanism where there is a punishment from an outside body as to whether um, you know they don't get fined or perhaps banned if they don't have a certain number of women on their boards. So they've instituted something which is, I guess, a halfway house between a, a target, something that's purely aspirational, which is where the Liberal Party is currently at, versus a quota which is legislated and has penalties that apply. And some uh, might refer to that as a hard target whereby um, it's a target with teeth, something which is a target. It's not uh, mandatory. However, there are incentives for it to occur and there are also um, strategies put in place, as you say, to make it happen and then um, a transparent process of measuring progress towards that goal or that target. And that's something which I saw many uh, male corporate CEOs argue for uh, was to say that this is a, a great mechanism. We already know that um, women are naturally as meritorious as men. They are, in some cases, more educated at a tertiary level than men, and we value um, diversity and the the breadth that it brings to our, our boards and decision-making, and thereby um, we will have targets that we ourselves uh, impose and and that has been quite an effective mechanism in many organisations. It's interesting that in the business and corporate sector something like that um, can be very palatable to uh, shareholders and people within the company. I wonder whether uh, the Liberal Party might take a, a moderate uh, approach and you know look to their, their corporate colleagues and perhaps see that there are other models. Um. I think, I mean, I, I see where you're coming from, but I, I suspect that the Liberal Party organisation is a long way behind the corporate world when it comes to recognising the benefits of diversity. I mean, as you know, the whole discussion 
question, the whole debate in the corporate world's been going on for a long, long time, you know, and, and it really only just started to bite when, um, you know, triple bottom line reporting was instituted and shareholders um, or other stakeholders started to demand that their um, corporates take this into consideration, start reporting back, and then they responded accordingly. And then boards responded to stakeholders and shareholders uh, making those requests. So that's been a 20 or 30 year um, evolution. I I don't think the Liberal Party is anywhere near where the corporate world's got to on that. So while it might work, targets with teeth might work in the corporate world because they are more evolved, um, I think you need to have something that's much stronger for the Liberal Party, um, so because I just don't think that they have evolved to that sort of thinking yet. It's such a shame, really, that uh, we say that that's the case because um, in practice, government is really meant to, I guess, set the example and the tone for other <laughs> sectors. Right. <laughs> They're meant to be the leaders, yes. Yeah. Funny about that. Isn't mm. it, isn't it? Um, I'd just like to close out our discussion by uh, talking about the uh, red heels that Julie Bishop wore and the particularly mm. pointed comment she made about um, her, I guess, failure to get the Liberal leadership and um, the fact that a woman wasn't elected. Um, I guess, could you share with us that moment when she was out in the courtyard uh, talking to the media and her response to um, when or why we might have a female Liberal leader? Mm, mm. So um, I, I talk about in my book, I actually open with Julie Bishop striding out into um, the courtyard to give that press conference. And the, the question that is asked of her, does she think that the Liberal Party would ever elect a popular Liberal woman as Prime Minister? And she wryly responded, well, I guess when they find one, they'll do so. Uh, So there was basically hitting the nail on the head. Here is this woman of popular, according to polls, was the most popular choice for leader of the Liberal Party at the time. With all of these credentials, um, obviously a woman of merit, but still could only garner 11 of her colleagues' votes. So Julie Bishop was basically indicating it's not all about merit. Mm. There are other factors at play, and one of them might be about me being a woman, just as Julia Gillard referred to um, in in one of her, in her departure speech. It's not all about gender, but that gender does play a part in it. Yes, and it's probably one of the biggest developments seeing a a Liberal woman such as Julie Bishop who has um, sought to distance herself from the feminist movement making such a a clear um, remark about the fact that her gender did play some role. Mm, And I I think that that you know, this is the, the, the thing that we're waiting to see. What, you know, we'll, what will happen next? What will these Liberal women do? They have supported um, Julie Bishop by wearing red into Parliament. They've spoken out. Will they then take the next step and say, OK, merit is a farce. We need to do something more. Let's do something within the Liberal Party, which is the Liberal women's way of doing things let's do something within the Liberal Party to change to Mm. to progress Liberal women 
It will be really interesting to watch, and I know this issue has much more to do in terms of its uh, playing out, and obviously the 2019 federal election will be mm. another marker in this real battle to get more women staying in the Liberal Party um, and getting pre-selected. Thank you so much, Paula, for your time and uh, for writing this very timely essay. Thanks, Amy. I've been speaking with Paula Mathewson, who is Dragonista on Twitter. She's a writer and she's written this new essay on Merit, which is out through Melbourne University Publishing. And uh, it's a great read and very easy to read. So I highly recommend it if you are interested in this issue and, uh, and just how sticky it can be. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.